This podcast is presented by the Prince George's County Memorial Library System. Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm Heather. And this is our podcast, These Books Made Me. Today, we're going to be talking about the Westing game. Friendly warning as always, this podcast contains spoilers. If you don't yet know who Violet Westing's mother is, continue at your own risk. We have two special guests this week. Hi, y'all. My name is Shom Thivadi. I use they, them pronouns, and I work at the Largo Kettering Library. Hello, I'm Marcia Quarles, and I work at the South Bowie Branch Library. Was this everyone's first time reading? If not, how did this reread compare to your memories of reading it when you were younger? This was not my first time reading it. I read this, I believe, when I was in maybe third grade. I loved it so much when I read it as a kid, and I really think that this book kicked off my binge reading of Agatha Christie (laughs) shortly after this. um, My best friend and I got obsessed with puzzle style mysteries and locked room mysteries. And I think it was completely because of this book. On reread, I still found it delightful. I've, I've read it certainly in the intervening years before this reread. So it felt familiar, but it always it makes me laugh. And it, I am always struck by how cleverly put together the pieces of the puzzle are. This was my first time reading it. I read it as an adult, so I can't look at it uh, with how it would have read to me as a child. But it was a it was a fun romp as an adult. And man, did a lot of things happen. <laughs> I read it as an adult when my daughter was reading it when she was in school. And I remember us quoting the book. I can't remember exactly what we were quoting, but we would quote the book and laugh out loud because the book was so funny. So yeah, after rereading it, it was just a joy and a pleasure to read it again. And it felt like it was brand new. And I, again, I did laugh out loud. Like you, Heather, I remember reading this when I was in fourth grade and it's funny now reading it the second time. I'm realizing there was certainly a lot that went over my head as a child But still, this was one of the first books I remember falling in love with. It really captivated my excitement since I was raised on a lot of Scooby-Doo mystery movies and books. So this was a great way to sort of bridge that with a more complex plot. And I loved it so much. In fact, I remember that my mom and I put a hold request at our local library to get the movie on video cassette. So I fondly remember not only the book, but engaging with the library through it as well. Marsha, do you want to take us through the plot real quick? So the plot of the Westing game opens up at Sunset Towers, an apartment building that, despite the implications of the name, faces east. The 16 residents of Sunset Towers apartment building are an eclectic bunch who have been handpicked to live and work in the luxurious new building overlooking a lake and the old Westing house. The Motley crew includes a dressmaker, a podiatrist, a judge, a secretary, a chef, a runner, and the irascible Tabitha Ruth Turtle Wexler. After the discovery of the body of the reclusive millionaire Sam Westing, each of the residents is summoned and told that they are his heirs and must solve a puzzle in order to inherit the Westing fortune and gain control of his business. Confusingly, the paperwork the lawyer reads to them names them as West Sam Westing's 16 nieces and nephews and says that one of them is responsible for his death. The 16 would-be puzzle solvers are sorted into eight pairs and giving a perplexing series of clues. The oddball pairings ultimately produce strong bonds and healing as the partners battle personal demons, the weather, a thief, and even a bomber in their quest to solve the mystery and inherit a fortune. I did a little research on the author, and it was surprisingly difficult to find substantial information about her because even her obituary in the New York Times was really, really brief. It was just a couple of paragraphs and was sort of buried in that edition, which shocked me because... She was a Newbery winner. Like, I feel like she deserved more space than that. Um, But I was able to find a lot of interviews and speeches and things she gave that appeared in the Horn book after the Newbery. So Ellen Raskin was an accomplished illustrator as well as an author of children's books. 
She was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1928, and she described herself as a child with straight dark hair and a singing range of three wrong notes. She entered the University of Wisconsin as a journalism major, but she quickly switched to studio art after viewing an exhibit of abstract art at the Chicago Institute of Art. She relocated to New York City and found work in a commercial arts studio where she began her experimentation with typesetting and block printing. This personal project eventually led to an ever-expanding set of freelance jobs illustrating for a variety of publication types and publishing houses. Ellen settled into a productive niche as a dust jacket designer. She produced cover art for over a thousand books, including the original cover for A Wrinkle in Time. During this time, she began writing and illustrating her own picture books, publishing her first book, Nothing Ever Happens on My Block, in 1966. She eventually found enough success that she was able to work exclusively on her own writing and illustrations of her own work. She began to write longer works for children, receiving a Newbery honor for her first book, Figs and Phantoms. She then won the Newbery Medal with the Weston Game in 1978. In addition to her artistic talents, Raskin was, according to her husband, a shrewd finance capitalist and amassed a sizable portfolio of stocks. While Raskin enjoyed success in multiple domains, she unfortunately suffered from ill health and died at the age of 56 from a connective tissue disorder. The Westing Game remains her best-known book and continues to be well-regarded and frequently read over 40 years after its publication. Each episode, our luminous literarian and frequent co-host, Hawa, will provide miscellany and insights from our book. It's time for Hawa's Headspace. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hawa's Headspace, the part of the podcast where I literally say whatever comes to mind. The Western game is a mystery. So for this episode segment, I'll be sharing with you all the first five things that come to mind when I think of mystery. Don't ask me why I chose the number five. Let's just go with it. Okay, so the first thing that comes to mind when I think of mystery is the TV show Scooby-Doo that I'm pretty sure most of you all are familiar with. I definitely think it's a classic. And also, I guess the, the van that they rode around in, I believe, was called the Mystery Machine. So there's also that element. Uh, the second thing that comes to mind when I think about mystery is a magnifying glass that might partially be in part because of my just thought of Scooby-Doo and Velma used to always like... I think use a magnifying glass or she'd lose her glasses or something like that. The third thing that comes to mind when I think of mystery is uh, question marks, just because I feel like when it comes to mystery, like you're, you're trying to solve a question or you just don't know what's happening. Nancy Drew books are also something that comes to mind when I think about mystery. Nancy Drew is probably like the first thing that I can think of for children when it comes to that genre. And they seem like they were pretty popular. I probably read a couple, but don't ask me to recall what I read. And the last thing that I think about when I think of mystery is the dark. Yeah, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the dark. And even like a lot of mystery books, like sometimes their covers will have such like a dark uh, tone. Um, and I was afraid of the dark as a kid, partially because there was so much mystery. Yeah, the dark. Well, folks, there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this season of me spewing out my random thoughts as much as I enjoyed sharing them with you all. How did this book hold up now that we read it 40 plus years after its publication? Were there any problematic parts? Did it feel dated? Did it feel fresh? How did you all find it? Well, it feels a little bit old timey in the technology, the way that people talk to each other and about each other along with the technology. It makes it feel like it's set further back in time, but it doesn't feel super tied to a really specific time and place other than prior to now. It's interesting because for me, the way that it was written with so early on them all being stuck inside of the tower because of the snowstorm, it felt like the pace of the book was stuck in that moment. So even though, like you're saying, there are certain elements that make it seem more old timey in terms of the technology, it felt like that enhanced that almost romanticized aspect of, oh, you're snowed in on a lake, like you can very clearly imagine that setting. And I think for me, reading as a child growing up in North Carolina, the idea of being snowed in on a lake was very foreign and unfamiliar. So I think in that regard, regardless of the year in which it's set, it all felt like an unknown experience to me as a reader, both when I was a child and now today. Yeah, for me, it, it doesn't feel old and it doesn't feel new. I understand the timing of it. Like I, you can put it in various different 
time periods, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And reading it again, uh, you know, as an adult reading it, I'm a little surprised that some of the stuff is in the book. I agree. I think it's that locked room setting puts it out of time. It's not particularly tied to any era. There's no pop culture references in it. Yes, there's a lack of technology. But again, I almost feel like the snowstorm gets you around that. What would they be doing on their cell phones if they had them? Like, Mm -hmm. there are a few things in there that, like Marcia said, reading it as an adult, you kind of cringe a little bit at a word choice. But then she works really hard to call out some of those things as well. The one that didn't get mentioned that's just in there casually is Flora Bombach's daughter, Rosalie. The write-up that Sandy had on her, I referred to her as mongoloid, which we would never, ever say today. And that's not commented on at all, even though with other word choices like that, it seems like Raskin really took pains to sort of point out the microaggressions of certain words. Like there was the reference to the oriental rug that was there when Turtle went into the house. And Mr. Who responds to the term oriental rug by saying Persian, Chinese rug. Like he's <laughs> he's very critical of like that term means nothing. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like it's lumping together so many countries of people in a meaningless, stereotypical way. The author was really surprisingly progressive in seeing things like that. The judge gets the clue brother and gets mm-hmm. upset and and says something about like, I'm not going to play this when you give me these minstrel show offensive clues like that. And I, I was kind of shocked by that in a children's book calling out something in that way. For me, like the book felt a little bit more modern just because of some of those things. But then whereas she very much seemed to be on top of People shouldn't be infantilizing the kid in the wheelchair. People shouldn't be putting uh, Madame Who in this slinky, stereotypical dress. That's offensive. And that Madame Who like bristled at that, even though she did it. She seemed to see certain things kind of clearly, but then other things, not so much. Yeah, she was very aware and was clearly presenting a lot of those, although she maybe missed or fell down on some others, even though she used, you know, the that terminology for Rosalie, she still, when Chris is being infantilized, different things she did better on than others. I think the characters kind of worked out of those microaggressions. I think they they confronted them and they actually said some things (laughs) to confront them. And eventually they all changed and became something else. Yeah, there's growth there. Mm -hmm. Like early on when Seidel keeps saying like, oh, he has a smile that would break your heart. And it is this pitying, infantilizing sort of reaction at Chris rather than with him. Um, And Chris, like, as we know, is brilliant and in no way is affected by his condition mentally, like cognitively. He's one of the smartest people in the book. But then when they get seated together at the restaurant... And they have the back and forth jokes, which were a little bit distasteful, but they did. They did have these back and forth jokes about the food that was going to be served at the Who's restaurant. And she saw him as a person. And then she stopped saying that, you know, she didn't do that again after that point because she saw him as a full human being. And I think you're right, Marsha, like a lot of the characters, you could see that, that their initial reactions to each other were very superficial. They were putting somebody in a category or a box and not seeing them as a fleshed out living, breathing person, but a role or a race or a, a job. And, and I think that that was, you know, that's a major driver of the book is these characters starting to see and accept mm-hmm. each other as, as human beings and these tight bonds that they make that last like well into the epilogue, you know, many, many years later, they are still extremely connected to each other through these friendships and experiences. They're found family, right? Mm-hmm. They all find each other and, and they seem to forge these really uh, tight bonds with people that do start to see them as individuals. And that, that seems to be very important for everyone in the book is to be valued and to be seen. And it's interesting as I was reading this, seeing the progression, as we're saying the growth of the characters and how they see one another, 
both made me think of Ellen Raskin as a writer, but then also the way that she constructs Sam Westing as a character because it's both the choice of her in writing it, but also the choice of Sam Westing in bringing the 16 of them together as the heirs and how he partners them in the pairs of eight. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but I realized recently that the pairings matches a number of pawns in a game of chess. Mm -hmm. So there's so many of those parallels in how it's written. But another instance of the growth of how the characters see one another that struck me was Judge Ford's reflection on how she at first thought of Angela as a pretty young thing. She is saying that and then Ellen Raskin has this beautiful inner monologue sort of of Judge Ford reflecting on that and examining how most of the characters in the book primarily see her in relation to who she is to marry and see her as just this pretty face rather than humanizing her, which obviously as the bomber behind all of the attacks in the book and with a story of her own, she has much more complexity than many, even the judge would see at first. With Sean bringing up the chess game, the puzzles in the book, again, I was just really impressed by how many layers there are to everything and how well she connects things that seem completely unimportant to the puzzle initially. There's so many like Chekhov's guns in here. Nothing appears early that isn't important later. One of the things that I had not caught before was the candle that Turtle sells to Sandy. And he says it's for his wife's birthday. And then it's used for the fireworks slash bomb in the final scene at the Westinghouse for Crow's birthday, who was Mr. Westing's wife, like it all just connects. And that seemed so unimportant. You know, she sells Mm -hmm. him a a candle and you read the scene and you're like, oh, you know, he's trying to make her feel better. And this funny scene, because she's like, for you, I'll give it to you for only five dollars. You know, it's (laughs) it's showing Turtle as this little like baby entrepreneur and Mm -hmm. and their interaction is really cute. But the candle ends up it's important. You know, it it actually matters. It was a clue. And Turtle sees then at the end of things that it was a clue. The chess game is great too, because so early on we have Otis and Crow as the king and queen because he's misunderstood their majesty's clue. But then that connects to the chess board that, that Theo has been playing the game of chess with Sandy. I just think the layers there are really fantastic. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the puzzles in the book and about puzzle books in general, because for me as a child, this was the first book that I remember reading like this, where the puzzles were like very deep and complex and multi-layered. Even reading it now feels like an homage to sort of Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes style locked room mysteries. I mean, I'm really bad at puzzles and mysteries, so I'm very easy to awe when it comes to them. But this one, I think, definitely managed to do that. I thought that they, we see the clues of all the characters. We kind of know, we're like, oh, it's that Purple Mountain Majesty song. Like, So we see that even though the characters don't until much later. So we kind of feel like we're in on something, but we're also missing like the lower layer of the mystery until the end, unless, well, maybe some people figured that I, I didn't until until the reveal. I, I'm almost always shocked by these things because I, I just don't have a brain for figuring out those on the fly. I also, you were pointing out, show them like the chess references with the pairs like that went over my head too. But I think that's a really clever layer that she put in there. So I think it's a It's a meticulous, well-thought-out puzzle that I think works for kids and adults. We talked a little bit, too, about uh, Angela being very much put in a box in many ways, you know, starting at the beginning when when for her position, I think she puts nothing. And by the end of the book, she's put person, which is an improvement, but (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of a minimal improvement. But she's a very interesting sort of depiction of, Uh, femininity in the book and how trapped she feels by she's perfect, right? Like she's what everybody would say is the perfect woman. She's beautiful and she's young and she's polite and quiet and she's engaged to a doctor and, you know, she's doing everything right and she's miserable. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to talk about Angela a little bit and then about the other women in the book, because I, I am struck by this book as being pretty, strongly feminist you know the the women in the book are all very different but they're all very well developed and i think very interesting characters in their own right so throwing it out there you see angela is really suffering under her mother's 
sense of who she is. And you see the opening scene is she's getting a dress fitted and her mother is fussing about she might accidentally get a pinprick while being fitted, which is just, I mean, that's something people survive. It's not the end of the world. She's just, she says she has very sensitive, delicate skin. <laughs> Whatever that means. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a pin. She'll be okay. No one wants to get stabbed, but it'll be fine. We see that Angela is, I mean, she's not, I mean, she's quiet, but she's, you know, she's not a shrinking violet. She's not especially sensitive. She's, you know, just kind of a, a person. And like she envies Turtle as, I think she uses the term neglected. I, I would prefer that my mother neglect me the way Turtle is, which Turtle doesn't love either. I don't think even though Turtle is doing her own thing and just seems pretty happy having some independence. But, uh, you know, you see Turtle wanting that relationship with Flora. She clearly was hungry for some maternal mm-hmm. affection there. Yeah, I think I think Angela's mother was so domineering and expected Angela to be this perfect, beautiful daughter to marry this doctor. And Angela, she just fell into place and did what her mother wanted her to do. And all that frustration and everything that she was feeling, she bottled it up so much. But eventually, the anger bubbled up (laughs) to the point where Angela, which no one will suspect, you know, becomes the bomber. And she didn't just do it once or twice. I mean, she did it several times to the point where, you know, her sister had to protect her and she ends up getting hurt. And I think she was okay with the flaw of her face, like getting her face was messed up from from her own bomb. But I think she was okay with that because she wasn't as perfect, you know, as everyone saw her. So, and eventually she ended up, spoiler alert, ended up marrying Dr. Denton anyway <laughs> over the years. But she she didn't even feel that relationship. She didn't want to be in that relationship. Um, but she was just going along and all that frustration came out. So I kind of, I really felt for her. She was the one that I felt felt for. And I was glad in the end that she gained the independence that she was quietly inside fighting for, but not saying it out loud. I think we could say that her anger literally exploded several times. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's interesting. She did marry the doctor after all, but presumably on her own terms. Her, after yeah, She went and I think became an orthopedic surgeon. Is mm-hmm, that what mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. end of the text said? And then I think the contrast of that with the story of Violet Westing, where, you know, you see the parallels and who they are and the situations they're in. Violet having had her partner chosen by her mother, who's Crow, um, being this politician and sort of that parallel idea of constructing a life for your daughter where she marries a powerful man and has all that that life entails and seeing how obviously Violet unfortunately took her own life. And while Angela also, since she has these bottled up emotions and a lack of agency early on, has that will to inflict harm upon herself as well. But seeing the growth and seeing what comes for her as opposed to the unfortunate fate that Violet Westing faced, I thought was a powerful contrast that Ellen Raskin wrote in. It's almost a throwaway in the book, but when we discover that Grace Wexler is actually also a Winklopple and she's the true niece of Sam Westing, and it's mentioned towards the end that she was basically disowned by her family because she married a Jew. Mm-hmm. So throughout the book, we're seeing like, oh, Grace is molding Angela into like even more successful version of what she wants to be this sort of socialite, perfect woman. But she wasn't that at all. She chose for love rather than what her family wanted. So Grace, Angela and Violet have all been in some ways, their families have tried to force them into a match or out of a match and tried to make those choices for them. And and the way that the three of them respond differently is very interesting, I think, to look at. I think we also have some other women in the book that are interesting characters. The judge, J.J. Ford, I think is a pretty great character. You know, she she grew up in the Westinghouse as the daughter of servants to Sam Westing. And he took a shine to her because he could see her potential and how smart she was. And then he funded her education at a boarding school and and she said probably pulled strings to get her into, I think she went to Columbia and Harvard for undergrad and law and maybe even got her her first job. But then it's from that point on, she never seems to have viewed that as something she 
earned, but rather a manipulation on his part that like he wasn't mm-hmm. giving that to her because she was smart and he thought she deserved opportunities, but that he was giving that to her because he wanted a judge in his pocket, which mm-hmm. is like, I feel like that's a very sophisticated thing to put in a children's book. Like the idea of somebody like grooming somebody and basically buying legal favors but she's still so angry about that. Mm-hmm. She never loses that. And you know, she's a profoundly accomplished woman. She ends mm-hmm. up on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <by> the <laughs> end of the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like clearly her own merits were what got her where she was. And I felt like reading the book that Sam Westing would have said that too. Like, I don't think he sent her to school to have a judge in his pocket. Right. I think he really was in his own weird, manipulative way, trying to give her opportunities to make the most of the potential that he saw. But I don't know that she ever shook that. No. Like by the end of the book, I think she still <laughs> resented the heck out of him she for it. She did. She was so resentful mm-hmm. and felt manipulated by him. And But she seemed to be the one to know him the best. Like mm-hmm. she, only she thought, <laughs> she thought she knew him the best. And she accepted what he gave her, but she did not feel comfortable about it and felt like she owed him. And she wanted to be clear of her debt to him for Mm -hmm. her schooling, which he does absolve her of during the game at the end where she gets basically the note that says you've paid this Mm -hmm. and this for the money that she gave to Sandy to say like your debt is removed. But I feel like that just made her more angry. (laughs) And like, honestly, I was kind of angry at him at that point. It was like... She knew she cleared this art. Like, you didn't need to, like, <laughs> rub it in again. Like, yeah, and you see, like, she's a very, like, scrupulous, meticulous person with an extremely strong sense, like a strict moral code and a strong sense of honor. You just see it driving her. I mean, you see it driving interaction with everybody else. Like, you know, how she is, she's a generous tipper and she she's really, like, nuanced and kind with Turtle when she thought Turtle was the bomber and uh, she and Chris have a pretty good relationship. She just, she wants to be free <laughs> of any sort of obligation. Yeah, she has such insight into the other characters mm-hmm. in the book and she's very graceful about Mm -hmm. the way that she accomplishes things. Just giving the business to Mr. Who's restaurant. Mm. She could see that the business is struggling, but Mm -hmm. she doesn't want it to seem like charity. So she orders the hors d'oeuvres. And then with Chris, you know, she really takes him on at the end as sort of a protege, but she's not as overbearing about it as Westing was with her. that she got like so fast that Angela was the bomber based on Turtle's reaction. Like she's so shrewd and she gets all of the other characters and she has such insight into them. But then I wonder a little bit if she has that same insight into herself, because Mm -hmm. I do feel like she would have solved the game except her emotions got in the Mm -hmm. way about Mm -hmm. Sam Westing. She got too caught up in like, Oh, he got me again. Oh, he's manipulating me again to like quite get all the way there. So she doesn't make that final leap to to Julian Eastman. She doesn't Mm -hmm. quite make that last jump there because she gets too hung up on the, oh, he got me again part. (laughs) Or at least that was my impression. Maybe she just let Turtle have it. I don't know if that was the end. Maybe that's a a controversial take. I I mean, I could see that interpretation. She's kind of seeing, yeah. Seeing lots of layers, I can see her letting Turtle have that win. Especially, Maybe she doesn't want to talk to that guy. And if I had been in her shoes, because she's t- talked about how up until she went to boarding school, I think until age 12, she would play chess with Sam mm-hmm, Westing. Mm-hmm. So the way that the queen oh. sacrificed the move that she would always lose to when playing Sam Westing shows up in the way the Westing game unfolds. If I was in her shoes, I would be mad at myself in my own internal dialogue trying to work through how Sam Westing continues to best me today. So it makes sense, the idea of taking a step back and let others flourish in it. For as many characters as there are in the book, I feel like they're very well developed. Mm -hmm. Especially for a children's book. Like I remember this was the first book I would have read with so many central protagonists, which I think felt overwhelming at first. But the way that Ellen Raskin writes very intentionally develops them both 
as how others see them, but also you see their internal dialogue and thought processes in a good way, which then made it not feel as overwhelming as it could have been given that there are 14 protagonists. So we should talk about Turtle. <laughs> I think yes. of our many protagonists, she is clearly meant to be the essentially the stand-in for the reader, and she is our, our heroine of the book. She solves the puzzle. And maybe even for Ellen Raskin a little, like, I think she's a little bit of an author into it there. She definitely in the the one Hornbook piece that I found, she says there are a lot of similarities between Turtle and how she was as a girl and it, even the way that her adult life played out. Basically like a stock maven, but <laughs> Ellen Raskin apparently <laughs> yeah. was as well. Like she right. she was a tremendously successful investor. And then I think her insight into Turtle's flaws and insecurities probably is very well earned. I think there's a lot of like real insight into Turtle in the book. Like she's certainly not presented as a Pollyanna or a a, a character that doesn't have a lot of flaws. Like <laughs> she goes around kicking everyone. She's very valid. I mean she expresses herself by kicking people and you know, her words are so cutting when she's angry, she cuts you down. But then again, she's soft, too. You know, I think I think it was Hannah who mentioned that she was vulnerable and seeking love, too. And you, you felt that at some point that you just wanted to give her a hug because, you know, she wasn't getting the love from her mother, like that, that you know, um, tangible love from her mother. And so she was seeking it outside with Flora. Did she go to Flora and ask her to do braid her hair? Yeah. I, yes. You know, yeah. she was like, well, my mother's busy. And then it became like a routine. A I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. Like Flora braided her hair like after that forever. Even though she has all this wisdom and is a whiz at navigating the stock market somehow at age 13, <laughs> she also has, you know, a childish crush on Doug Who and mm -hmm. even as he teases her. So seeing that sort of complexity in who she is both as a child and almost an adult. Yeah, she's. For 13, she's very immature, like in the way that she presents. She's precocious intellectually, but emotionally she presents to me as much younger child than 13. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think she's been kind of stunted by her mom just really not loving her at all. Grace does come around at the end. She talks about the end of the book. She says something about turtles going to be something and mm -hmm. like she's the smartest child. That's still like, yeah, like she's the only child, like, in the building. And so she is, you know, comes off cross as being bratty and spoiled. And, and yeah, a little younger. I hadn't thought about that. But going around kicking people in the shins <laughs> at 13 is, <laughs> is not a, like a behavior that 13-year-olds usually. And then that comes do. to her benefit down the road yeah. when seeing yeah. people who she's kicked aren't who as they identify. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, people are like legitimately injured. You know, Chris early on spots the person limping from the the Westinghouse. And we later learned that that was Dr. Sykes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but, you know, he's on on the lookout for the limper the whole time because he, he spied it through his bird watching binoculars. But so many people are, are like badly limping because <laughs> Turtle has kicked them. Everyone is limping. Yeah, and, and, and then, then all like, the men are limping. Yes, I don't think the women limping. are limping. I think all the men are limping. That's true. I don't think she's kicked any of the women. Um, well, Seidel is limping. Seidel limps but, yeah, fakely. Yeah, and for real when she breaks her ankle. Crow limps because she has a corn. Right. But, but like none of them have been kicked, kicked by <laughs> Turtle. I do. The, the the whole thing with Doug who cracks like his it's whole character funny. cracks me yeah. up like his running everywhere and then Theo being like you gotta follow Otis Amber and he's described as like basically running like multiple marathons in two <laughs> days <laughs> trying to like tail this guy for miles everywhere and then after he wins the state race the like where he's putting up the like number ones inappropriately <laughs> everywhere like <laughs> I just I thought that character was great. Yeah, he just he just had a training regimen to maintain and all this stuff was happening. He's like, I just need to stay in shape. <laughs> but then his training regimen ends up being terrible because Theo makes him like tail Otis Amber. Like before the big race, you'd be on a taper. You would not want to be like ultra marathoning yeah. the two days before the race. I think that was a really interesting um, presentation of parental disappointment as well, yeah. because Jimmy, who 
for most of the book, is extremely disappointed in Doc. Mm -hmm. Why is he running all the time? He should study. Like, he has a very narrow vision of what a good kid is. And Doug's a great kid. Like, he's very serious about his running, and he's extremely talented. He's a good friend. He seems kind to his stepmother, who needs some kindness. Mm -hmm. She's in a bad situation. But, like, he's very disappointing. He's one of the many disappointments of Jimmy Who's life, you know, Mm -hmm. his his failed stolen inventions, his failing restaurant, like his marriage. <laughs> yeah. And and that's it's interesting that Westing paired him with Grace as the like yes. two disappointed parents. And somehow together they sort of get each other to the place that they're able to see their children more clearly, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting yeah, they're twist. Both, they're both miserable and stressed and doesn't go very well the two of them at first, but they seem to get better together. Grace Windsor is a restaurateur at the end and is like really happy and Mr. Who is doing something else and seems way less stressed and a lot yeah. more fulfilled. He has like what, 10 restaurants? Yeah. 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 She ends yeah. up being like an empire of Chinese restaurants, which is right. odd. But like it's very high profile, right? She's mm-hmm. having all these athletes come in and yeah. take their pictures with her. Yeah. It's exactly what she wanted. Mm-hmm. And he ends up being successful with his inventions. He's finally getting credit, Mm -hmm. which was what he wanted. And then I think Jake and Sonny being paired together is interesting, too. It's long-suffering spouses of these two people. And they end up really, like, connecting in in an interesting way. I did think that that was the character of Madam Who is interesting as well, because much like Chris, there's a lot of points at which other characters infantilize her or stereotype her in some way because of her appearance, essentially. It was interesting how often the internal monologue for the characters would point out things like that, where something could have just slid by, you know, Grace making her wear the slinky dress Mm -hmm. kind of thing, but it doesn't. There's commentary on it, Mm -hmm. which to me, that felt a lot fresher than the age of the book. Many of those things are pointed out, like subtle things are pointed out as being like very damaging and and unkind and cruel and reductive. And I remember being very surprised that she was the thief the whole time. I don't think as I was reading it the first time as a kid that she was even on the top of my radar as someone who would be in that role. But the way that she's trying to steal all these valuable items to save up money to return, I think she's originally from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. To go there, I thought that was a brilliant detail that Ellen Raskin wrote in. She does ultimately at the end have the ability to go back to Hong Kong. So seeing that trajectory of her as a character, both in the context of the family that she has entered, but then having her own individual agency and storyline as well. Well, and she becomes very successful. She's apparently a very good bookkeeper and and takes over the financial aspects of Mr. Who's inner souls <laughs> um, and then keeps the business running even after he passes away mm-hmm. it, it it is interesting to me that other than westing all of the like financial brains in the book are the mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. it's true mm-hmm. i didn't realize it until you pointed that out and some of the more like emotional softer side characters are the men mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. jake is one of the kinder characters i think Chris and Theo are both very kind and mm-hmm. under, they understand people very well. So there's sort of an inversion of how gender's typically portrayed, especially in children's book. When there's this many characters, you know, it's, right. it's easier to just put people into like men are good at this and they mm-hmm. do this and that. And then the women do this and that. And it's this kind of person. But they're, again, they're all very well developed and often developed against what I think gender stereotyping does. Like show my little surprise when. Madam Who was the thief. Like, I figured it was Sam Westing messing with the <laughs> characters in some way because it was clearly you revealed her, like, oh, okay, this poor woman is miserable and just wants to go back to China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt some kind of way about that when I read, you know, when I realized that she was the, the thief. It just broke my heart that she felt like she had to steal all these items to try to get back home right. and that she was so Mm-hmm. miserable here and didn't like her life at all and she just wanted to go back home and she had to steal god that'd be awful you come somewhere and have no connections other than your husband who is you know really just disconnected really <laughs> he's just miserable he's so angry all the time 
and not having really any agency in her own life. She's not a chef. And he's like, go be the chef in my restaurant and go wear this dress to serve people in the restaurant. And she clearly has a lot more going for her than the things that people are making her do or like believe about her. The storyline of seeing her retain this idea of wanting connection and ability to go back to Hong Kong was interesting with how multicultural the characters in the book are. You know, the way that we have Polish characters, Greek characters, Jewish characters, um, and seeing that the way that patriotism is a part of, you know, Uncle Sam as Sam Westing. A lot of times the way that patriotism can play out the idea of a melting pot where everyone comes under one American identity. And obviously, as that's a flawed way of looking at people of different backgrounds. But I thought the way that Madam Who has others who don't fit into the WASP image of what American patriotism often highlights, I really appreciated seeing the more nuance in how each of those characters were developed accordingly. Shom found a really great article in The New Yorker about the Westing game. And this book came out in 78, but she would have been in progress on it during the bicentennial for the United States in Mm -hmm. 76, apparently. And I think that the book actually does have a lot of interesting things to say about America and Americanism. Yeah, I I think the take home is assimilation is not all it's cracked up Mm -hmm. to be. And it's actually quite for anybody, you know, whether that's gender roles, whether it's language you speak or or where you're from, but that that is, it's not healthy, you know, that it's very damaging to all of these characters. But then at the same time, it's very like rah-rah capitalism. (laughs) Look at Turtle Go. She's like winning it at the stock market. And we are meant to think that, you know, Turtle's outcome is a happy ending, right? Is it really? You know, like she's very rich. But she marries. She marries Theo. She just married Theo. So, But then that, okay, so that bothered me too. So (laughs) at the end, Turtle is talking about Theo, who is her husband now, Mm -hmm. and says, oh, yes, he wrote a book. It only sold like six copies, but, you know, it got good reviews. And she says it in this way that's extremely dismissive. It's a very cutting way to say that rather than to be like, but that's Turtle. <laughs> that's Turtle. I know, but I just feel bad for him. Yeah. Like, I, but I'm assuming that he married her knowing that. I mean, did she kick him too? I mean, oh, no. <laughs> he, he knows Turtle, so. <laughs> I don't think we get, I feel like Theo doesn't get developed as much as the other characters in some ways. Mm. I, I, I mean, I think there is... He does have a character. He's not a blank, but the other characters get so much development that he almost feels maybe I missed it. There was so much going on, but he almost seems to fade into the background. No, he's definitely developed less than his brother is. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you, you know, you. he did put when they have to list their positions right. when they're given the initial mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. invitations. He puts brother as his position. I'm yeah. not sure that he ever moves beyond that. He is very much just a support role. Mm-hmm. It feels like Angela. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit like, did you say stunted just now? Is, yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. I think for Angela, though, we get such a rich interior life on sure. her. We get so much of her mm-hmm. inner feelings and thoughts. And there's more action on her part. There's not a lot there for Theo. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, I guess, trying to solve the mystery. He sends Doug to tail Otis. So he's sort of on the right track. But we never get a whole lot. I think because Chris, Chris and his condition, I think, just takes over and so much attention is focused on Chris that he he loves his brother so much and that he just takes a back seat. And I think that's just how it was for him. That's why we don't know much about him. I think that may have been intentional, too, on her part. I don't remember what he puts as his position at the end. Did we find out? Everybody's everybody changed their Everyone their, changed, changed, changed it, their, um, their, their positions. I have to go to my phone. Yeah. Who was it that made like a snarky dad joke about like standing? That was Jake. It was like position. That sounds like Jake. Like <laughs> corny dad joke. Seated or standing unless lying down, I think was what he said. <laughs> yeah, he's totally a dad joke. Yes. I'm really wondering at the, about those two relationships. If, um, if Mr. Who and They're Grace were people. actually yes. going to leave, like they were going to switch wives and husbands yeah. or something like that. It just kind of got that feeling that, um, well, and that's pretty sophisticated yeah, to put in a children's yeah. book, right. too. And it's not, 
I don't think it's just under the surface because Jake intentionally touches Sonny's hand to make Grace jealous. And he's like, good. She finally sees me. She should be jealous. Mm -hmm. Like, because he's jealous that she's spending so much time with Jimmy. Yeah. But yeah, things like that. I feel like that sort of thing is not usually built into children's books, nor is it acknowledged in children's books when there's an undercurrent. Yeah. And you have the inversion of Grace and Jimmy in their titles at the end, because she puts herself as restaurateur at the end. And he puts himself as inventor. And she also uses her maiden name. It's an interesting book. I think it is saying a lot of things or it's trying to say a lot of things. And I do do wonder because I'm not sure a kid would catch some of these things. I only remember catching it as an adult <laughs> when I read it with my daughter. I just read the book and enjoyed it so much. I don't think I thought about anything. But reading it a second time, there were I did gasp <laughs> a few times and wonder what her Tensions were. And one thing that I'm still not entirely certain of, I get the sense that she wants us to see that all of the characters have some flaws, but are all still worthy of love mm-hmm. and all are good people at the end of the day. But then, um, as you were saying, Heather, the idea of the way that capitalism is portrayed, where Turtle ends up, or TR ultimately ends up being this. Um, was with a stock market and a business person. But at the same time, I remember reading the second time a detail which I didn't catch at first was that the person who Sandy McSuthers is created to be was fired from Westing's company for being a union organizer. So there are all these contradictions in the sense that I feel that I want to care for each character, but at the same time, some of who they are is sort of at odds with the livability of who others are in terms of their place in society. Yeah. And that it does make me wonder, like, what is her ultimate message in this? Because really up until the very end, it seems to be somewhat Mm anti-capitalist, right? Like the knocks on Westing were that he was money obsessed to the point that all of these bad things happened to people around him. He stole someone's invention. He Sandy, the character he created, he fired for trying to unionize and we're clearly supposed to sympathize with Sandy. It's he's written that way. You know, he's ignored his wife's grief to the point that she's, you know, completely gone off the rails and become an alcoholic post death of Violet. But then he also like spends a ton of money to hire someone to like continually follow her Mm -hmm. around. So we have all these like negative portrayals of the rich you know grace wants to be rich but that's definitely depicted as gross her friends that she brings to the shower for angela cookie barf springer uh, which is just the greatest name ever and i think it needs to be a band name Um, but like she just offers pretty brutal depictions of the rich and the wannabe rich it's not a flattering portrayal but then the winner, what she wins is being rich. Mm-hmm. You know, she she wins by being an uber capitalist, mm-hmm. which I'm just not really, I'm not sure how to take that. But I think she made them all winners at the end. I mean, they all gained something at the end. That's a good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think that's, I think that was her point is that they all started off kind of like not knowing who they were, but at, by the end of the book, not only did they knew who they were, but we did too. We knew mm-hmm. that they grew yeah, and that they all gained something. So I'm taking it as, as if she wanted them all to win in some way. I think that's actually a really good point, Marsha. And she, there is that quote in the book that life too is senseless unless you know who you are, what you want and which way the wind mm-hmm. blows. That is true. They all did get what they want in the end by kind of knowing themselves. They win in that sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. They achieve, many of them, incredible success, be it Olympic gold or successful chain of restaurants. (laughs) (laughs) Not Theo. Theo. I mean, almost all of them. They achieve like level of success that feel unrealistic to have happened to this group of people all from the same apartment. So this, it almost (laughs) feels a lot more like a children's book at that point where it's like, there's some wish fulfillment. They're, they're super wealthy. They're super brilliant. They're super fulfilled. They're super successful. Except for Theo, as (laughs) we discussed, it it really felt a lot more like a kid's book at the end. I'm like, I mean, there's some moments of where 
if it feeling kind of unrealistic, like when the lawyer has the perfect letter or the perfect write up in the will, like sit down, so and so, read this to yeah. prove it. I'm like, wait, is he a mind reader? Like, how is this happening? Well, that's but, sort yeah. of the trope, right? I mean, right. I, and again, this does to me feel so much like an homage to Agatha Christie because it is, it's the locked room trope. Why are all of these people called together to this one place? Like that would never happen, but it, it's such a common device, I think, in in mysteries, especially the locked room mystery. There's a will being read like that's that starts so many books, you know, yes. now like something like Knives Out. It's the same premise. It's like everyone is brought together in this one place and then the old man has died and now all these squabbling heirs. I think she does some clever inversions on it. But yeah, it, it is a little too neat at the end. I like that. It was kind of fanciful. And I, I like that about it at the end because it wasn't all doom and gloom. It was like happy. Right. <laughs> and I like that about, about the ending. Yeah. It made me think too of how this is just an absurdly funny book. Yeah. Like so yes. many, so much humor in it. Like while I was reading it the second time, I found myself laughing out loud mm -hmm. a lot, which again, like we're saying, even though there are some dark themes or happenings in it, it very much clearly is suitable for children since even though there are different layers, you can find what works for you. I remember especially when Miss Pulaski is trying to figure out who the twins are um, and she just keeps saying the most absurd one-liners when she's... Maybe they're twins. Yeah. Ordering drinks saying, make it a double, like twins. Your son, you look like twins. <laughs> yeah. It's just so absurd. Um, and I think that's the beauty of it, having those concurrent narratives yeah she's a really quippy writer like yes, she yes, gets yes. some really good one-liners in there like i laughed so hard at the part where, where denton goes to get chris and he's like maybe he was being held hostage oh boy i haven't had so much fun in years yeah. <laughs> this is like enjoying all of the attention he's enjoying everything that's happening it's <laughs> so funny so on that note is this book for kids I mean, Shoma and I clearly sure. enjoyed yeah, it when we were yeah. when we were kids. Today's but kids, it's today's kids, pretty adult in a lot <laughs> yeah. of ways. I think she wrote it for adults, didn't she? I mean, she wrote it for children with adults in mind. I would think. I think it's a little of both because as an adult reading it, I loved it. As a kid today, with some of the things she's had in the book and what kids are experiencing today, I think I would have an older kid read it. And there's a part in the editor's note where her editor, Anne Durrell, says that, like you were saying, Marsha, Ellen Raskin thought that she was writing it for the children and herself, the children and adult. But the editor notes that she thinks she was wrong and instead that this book was written for the adult and children. Yeah. It doesn't pander or condescend at all. I think the book thinks the kids can get mm -hmm. those yeah, layers. Yeah. It thinks yeah. that kids will understand the satire and the poking at certain things. And yeah, and again, just that she wove in so many of those comments on microaggression, like that to me feels incredibly forward thinking for the time period that it was mm -hmm. written in and important, like just to, to have that light switch go on for a kid, like that is a really crappy way to treat somebody or that mm -hmm. is a really weird thing to say. I think that's pretty interesting just given as how old it was and also i think that kids books often gloss over things like they don't want to touch those things even now mm -hmm. or if they do they do it in a very pedantic way where right. it's like this book is going to teach you some lessons about yeah, how to treat people yeah, and it's steps yeah, yeah. there's a message <laughs> with a capital m yeah. yeah i mean i think we've we keep coming back to this topic on on the pod like who is it for and we've read a lot of books where that we can't really figure it out or it works on both levels like you were saying marcia like it's this feels like it's for adults and for kids. Maybe like how when you watch a Disney film they or Pixar film, they put in jokes for the parents. Maybe what she's accomplished here is at a different level than that. But I would recommend it for children. I would, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it holds up pretty mm -hmm. well. And I think it I think Hannah said it's a romp. Mm -hmm. It is like <laughs> there's a lot that happens in this it book. Is. Like, I think it's fun. It's exciting. And it's you want the payoff at the end of okay, well, I think I've put together these clues. And, and there is there is a person in there with the last name of Plum, which makes me think of Clue. And I just <laughs> have to state that before. I think that was intentional. <laughs> oh, I really? thought that as well. It, it um, had to have been, right? Yeah, okay. it, it must be. As a child, you're going to know some of these people. You, you, 
they've probably they probably have, have come across some of these people and some of these characters and characteristic and people that they that they know and their <laughs> their families in some way. So I think they're going to be able to relate. Yeah, it's a very book. relatable mm-hmm. book. Like everyone has experienced not getting attention when they need attention or mm-hmm. getting the wrong kind of attention or being reduced down mm-hmm. to a stereotype mm-hmm. or or the weight of other people's expectations. Like I think there's someone in this book for everyone to like latch on to is like, oh yeah, I know how that feels. Mm-hmm. There's 16 characters or more. Yeah. There's a lot of characters in this book. So. I mean, it's a slim book. The yeah. fact that she fit so much characterization and plot into 182 page my copy book is well, impressive. And credit to Ann Durrell, the mm-hmm. editor, because yeah. I can't imagine that the original was this tight. Mm-hmm. There's no way. Like this had <laughs> to have been more to get it fleshed out and to to get it down to what it is. It's very tightly written book and it like I think the pacing is good and there's very little excess that doesn't pay off in some way in the end. And I feel like this is a very well edited book. (laughs) Credit to her. So for our game segment, we are going to explore a quiz that we're going to take as Turtle. It's a quiz called the Westing game, which character are you? Okay, so we're pretending to be turtle for this one. Yeah. How dedicated are you to your work? First answer is whatever it takes. It's illegal, but who cares? I'm committed or give it a few days and see what happens. I think turtle wouldn't care if something was illegal. I don't think she would either. But does she do anything illegal? I mean, she takes credit for the bombs to save Angela. She breaks into the mansion. Oh, that's, that's true. That's peanut butter sandwich yeah. breaks in that yeah. mansion. Good point. So, it's illegal, but who cares? Because, yeah. yeah, she yeah. just wanted that's, those. That's what it is. Those I dollars for the bet. So. <laughs> yeah. And her dad's a bookie. We didn't talk yep, about we that. We didn't talk about that at all. And then yeah. He gets put on the state crime commission, which is <laughs> that amazing. That was hilarious. Just hilarious. So do we think it's illegal? Who cares? Yeah. I think. Yeah. How do you act around friends? <laughs> Funny, silly, and loose. Shy and quiet. Dumb and careless. I don't have any friends. Oh, that's hard. Turtle doesn't yeah. have, have any friends. friends. Yeah. <laughs> she only has um, she gets Flora. Flora yeah, by the yeah. end. But I, that's Baba. it. I would yeah. say I have no I would no, say no, no friends. Friend. Well, she's friendly with Sandy, but it's, right. it's, not, it's not a she developed kicks him, friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think no friends. <laughs> no friends. If you were trapped on an island with another person, what would you do? Nothing? Go sit under a tree and starve to death? I don't know. Listen to the other person? Build a hut and then think of ways to get food and leave, or make them do as I say so we could survive. I would say make them do what I say. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's going to delegate roles and have it play out how she wants it. If you had to fight someone, what would you do? Beat them up. That might be our answer. Let them beat me up. Pay someone to do it for me. Beg to not fight. She would beat him up. Clearly. 100%. No hesitation. (laughs) Do you like where you are? No, I want to move back home. I can make me like it. Yeah, I like it. Where am I? I kind of like I can make me like it because I feel like even when she goes into the Westinghouse, she's like, I'm going to put this on the fake wart. So if there's a stench, (laughs) I'll just like push through. She's very like willpower. Yes. Your results, Turtle Wexler. (laughs) You are a determined and intelligent person. You're not afraid to keep people in line and punish when needed, even if you are 13. You are pretty much the main female character of the book, and that means a lot to you because you are not extremely good looking. (laughs) That's mean. This is a weird summary of Turtle. Well, Turtle is mean. (laughs) I guess she would be very realistic about herself. True. Each episode, we ask whether our book passes the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test asks whether a work features two female characters who talk to each other about something that doesn't involve men or boys. So, does the Westing game pass? Yes. Angela and Turtle talk about bombing. <laughs> yes. Flora and Turtle talk about Rosalie. Yes. And stocks. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many sidebar conversations yes. that yes. don't involve men i feel like we could do a super cut of all the episodes we've discussed the bechdel test for 
And we said, yes, it passes because of discussion of violence between these yes. two characters. Oh, yes. Where yes. it's just like two women discuss something that involves violence or crime. <laughs> yeah. It's a thing. Well, that's it for this season of These Books Made Me. Stay tuned for possible bonus episodes and news of next season. If you have suggestions for future books to cover, feel free to drop us a tweet. We're at PGCMLS on Twitter and hashtag These Books Made Me.